We turn our attention to, yet again, another gospel story in the Old Testament, thinking tonight about the life of Samson. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, I trust you've seen something of a sequence and intent with the survey of this study, because what we meant to pick up where the morning series from about 18 months ago left off in Exodus. We thought about the wilderness wanderings, and we heard something from Moses there before he died, and they entered into the promised land. Then we thought about the conquest of the promised land, and, and now we're coming to that time period where the nation's in the promised land, but the monarchy hasn't shown up yet. We don't have a king yet in the land, and Lord willing, in just two weeks' time, we'll get to that. But what we want to do for our second and final study in the book of Judges is think about Samson, and we're going to think about the end of his life. So let me start our reading in verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 16, and then I'll take it all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 31, and then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So listen now as... As once again, God does speak to you through his perfect word. And when Delilah pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, Samson's soul was vexed to death. He told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak And be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And after he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god. And to rejoice, and they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me, only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down, 
and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us now through your word. We thank you and even rejoice this night that your word is clear unto us, that your word contains the words of eternal life that are found in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask your blessing upon this study. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Some years ago, I passed a book along to my twin sister, telling her this is the best book I've ever read, and she came back months later, having read that book, saying something to the effect of, I don't know why you think this book is any good, it's so boring. And what I had given her was a biography of Jonathan Edwards. I had in recent years, at that point in my life, become somewhat accustomed to another pastor named John Piper, speaking of Jonathan Edwards as his historical hero. Uh, Enough times where I thought, well, I I should know something more about uh, this hero named Jonathan Edwards because my understanding of Edwards was a little more than just your kind of cursory high school-like education that you can get on that supposed Puritan of old. Well, uh, John Piper was a man who had many years and many decades spent with Jonathan Edwards and to great effect and much much power in his own life. When he was in doctoral studies, Piper was in Munich, and he took this eight-foot by five-foot pantry there in his Munich apartment, and he turned it into something of a study closet where he would pray and he would read. And he's often remarked about how during those doctoral studies years, he would read Edwards in this closet. And one time he was reading Edwards' dissertation, Concerning for which, concerning the end for which God created the world. So why did God create the world, kids? That was this dissertation he was reading from Edwards. And, and Piper wrote at that time, many decades ago, that pantry became to me, as it were, a, a vestibule of heaven. Now, if you fast forward the story in Piper's life to just a few years ago, you would find him writing another uh, well-known article in certain circles uh, regarding this hero named Jonathan Edwards. And how do you understand all the good that Edwards gives in his writing uh, combined with some not-so-hidden public scandalous sins. And it's true, I imagine many of you would agree, that Christians need heroes. I think you can actually build a case from Scripture that says Christians need heroes. You can turn to a passage like Hebrews chapter 13 that says, Remember the leaders who spoke God's word to you. Consider the, their way of life, the outcome of their life, and, and imitate their faith. Uh, there, there's a command of God that Christians need people of whom they can imitate their faith. Men and women who stir them up to zeal and godliness. Men and women who stir them up to fruitfulness and faithfulness. But what do you do when you have a less than perfect hero? Now, what do you do when you realize that Jonathan Edwards kept slaves What do you do when you realize that Martin Luther said many dastardly things about the Jews near the end of his ministry? What do you do when you realize that John Calvin uh, okayed the execution of a man named Michael Servetus? Uh, What do children do when they grow up idolizing their mom and their dad and figure out later in life, oh, they're not nearly as perfect as I thought they were? What do you do with that heroic model that compelled you for so many years, and then you figure out, well, it's actually flawed. It isn't perfect. 
Well, I tell you that because we come tonight to the story of Samson. Kids, I'm sure you would agree that this is a story that is really about a superhero in the Old Testament. It's almost as close as we get in God's word to something akin to our modern day understanding of, of, of superhero. He's a man whose story has continually captivated countless people throughout the years, and yet if you know the story at all, you know, he is a heroic individual. There's no doubt about it. But he's a flawed. He's an imperfect. He's an often faithless judge and deliverer, a savior of God's people. So what do you do when the hero is less than perfect? Well, of course, the biblical path of wisdom Christian discernment uh, means little more than, what do you do? You, you learn from their flaws, and you learn from the ways in which God's grace has manifested itself in their life, this less-than-perfect hero. And so we want to do that tonight from the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16 and even stretching back to Judges chapter 13. So if you are with us last week, Pastor Trigstead started off our two series, our two sermons in the book of Judges. And students, you might remember that the, the simple kind of summary skeleton of the book of Judges, uh, you can summarize in this sentence. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you want to put a little bit more flesh on that skeleton, all you need to know is that the book of Judges is little more, isn't it, than this cycle of sin and salvation on rinse and repeat in Israel's redemptive history. Because what happens? Israel falls into unrepentance and idolatry. Yahweh then disciplines them by giving them into the hand of one of their enemies. Time passes. Israel cries out for deliverance. Yahweh listens, sends a judge, sends a deliverer who not only brings salvation but restores peace in the land. Eventually, that judge dies and the cycle repeats itself all over again. And we're giving our attention to the judge named Samson. And if you glance back to the end of chapter 12, what you would actually see is that the judge preceding Samson was a man named Abdon, and he ruled, judged Israel for eight years. And the pattern then begins to repeat. You'll notice verse 1 of chapter 13. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So that's the context into which Samson came. An entire generation of Israelites have known nothing other than tyranny under the hand of their Philistine oppressors. And there comes Samson. So our theme tonight is this story of strength. It's, it's a gospel story we want to see by the end. That is one in which I want to fix your attention on a gospel story of God's strength for his people. And what I want you to see, even though we're going to use chapter 16 and this final scene in Samson's life as something as a launching pad, what I want you to see from Samuel's life, and I'm sorry, Samson's life and ministry is five, are five themes that we should take away from this story of strength. So theme number one from Samson's life. Samson was a man set apart. Samson was a man set apart. If you just kind of glance your eyes through the first half of chapter 16, where we kind of picked up our reading right in the middle, uh, you may know that Samson has fallen under the captivating power of this woman named Delilah, whom herself is under the captive power of Philistine overlords. And they have instructed Delilah, hey, you have Samson's heart. 
Well, you need to figure out the story of his strength, this man that has ravaged our nation for far too long, something like two decades by that point. And she's tried in multiple ways to figure out the secret of Samson's strength, and she's failed multiple times until finally at the end, after nagging and nagging, verse 16 says, look at verse 17 of chapter 16, where Samson again told Delilah all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So when God meant to save his people from 40 years of tyranny under the hand of the Philistines, he he began in a most unexpected place, chapter 13 tells us. He was going to bring forth a savior from the womb of a childless woman. Uh, We know from chapter 13 that Samson's parents had no children. It actually uses this language in such a way, it was clear that his mother was barren. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I mean to bring a savior from you. You will conceive and a child will be born. And if you flip back to verse four and five of chapter 13, you'll see how Samson, even from his conception, was set apart. He was consecrated. Verse 5 instructs his mother, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For, behold, verse 5, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Uh, you may know something about the Nazarite vow, which gets more of an exposition in the book of Numbers. Uh, you might know that it's simply a, a vow for a certain length of time. It's not a defined length of time, but in Samson's life, it seems to be a perpetual vow before the Lord, where he wasn't to cut his hair, he wasn't to have wine or strong drink, and he wasn't to come in contact with anything deadly. He was set apart in service to the Lord. And one of the good news realities of what it means to come to Jesus Christ in faith is that that for all of those that the Lord has chosen, they too have been set apart in order that they might serve the Lord. As Paul would tell the Ephesians in chapter 1 of that wonderful letter, what does he say? But from eternity past, God chose you in Christ Jesus, that you would be holy, that you would be set apart, that you would be consecrated, that you would be blameless before the Lord. There might not be a Nazarite vow that you have taken. Uh, but I sure hope you understand that for those that generally are called by the Lord, uh, there are certain things they don't do that the rest of the world does. There are certain things that we do that the rest of the world doesn't. Samson was a man set apart, but if you know anything about his life, even the terms of this Nazarite vow, he repeatedly broke, which leads to the second thing in Samson's life. That is, he's a man who lived by sight. So if you flip back to chapter 16, eventually he's imprisoned, right? You have this person come in the middle of the night while Samson is asleep on Delilah's lap and he loses the seven locks of his lustrous hair and then he tries to break out thinking he can again save himself from the Philistines that come upon him. But this time the Lord has left him. And you'll see what they do with him in verse 21. They seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. So God's savior, Samson, has become a sightless slave. 
And it's altogether ironic if you know anything about Samson's life story because he was a man up until this point, uh, close to two decades of serving and judging for the nation of Israel, who had so often, he'd lived by sight. He made all of his decisions based on what he saw, what his eyes wanted. You flip back to chapter 14, what you would see is that one day Samson uh, sees this daughter of the Philistines in Timnah. And he says, Mom and Dad, I I want you to go and arrange this marriage with that daughter of the Philistines. And understandably, his parents object because it's clear by this point, no doubt, in the Old Testament uh, that God's people, they weren't supposed to intermarry with, with the pagan peoples. They were not only to be set apart within their ordinary life, but set apart, even consecrated in the covenant of marriage. But look at the end of verse 3. Samson commands his dad, get her for me. Why? For she is right in my eyes. Then you skip ahead to verse 1 of chapter 16, before the, even the scene with Delilah. Samson went to Gaza, verse 1, chapter 16, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. It's quite true that so much of the Christian life and its struggle is the struggle to do what God says we must do in this new covenant age of wilderness wanderings as we're looking forward in this pilgrimage that is life here on earth, looking forward to the heavenly dwelling place that longs to us, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. And Samson, so much of his life story is, is that about falling short, that about being faithless even to the vow, this consecration of the Lord. Why? Because he saw something that he wanted. If you know anything from even the fall of mankind in the book of Genesis chapter 3, what is it that originally tempts Eve? Well, she sees, not just hearing from the devil, sees that the fruit was pleasant to the eye. You know, kids, I do hope your parents or even a Sunday school teacher has taught you the song, well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Uh, there's a lot more a useful and even eternally significant application in that little Sunday school song than we sometimes give it credit for. I wonder the ways in which you might have even this week lived like Samson, living by sight, not by faith, seen through to the other side, but so captivated by what's in front of you that you may have fallen into disobedience. But the good news of Samson in part is that God uses people who live by sight. God uses people whose eyes are often led astray to accomplish his sovereign purposes. For that's what I need you to see in our third theme with Samson, is that he was part of God's sovereign plan. Because if you go back to chapter 14, what you'll notice is what we're told immediately after Samson says, she's right in my eyes. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. Samson's father and mother did not know it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now you need to know something here actually about the language in verse 4 because there's there's two possible interpretations that you legitimately can make actually from the original text. Uh, The question is in the latter part of, or really the middle part of verse 4 is, who's the he that was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines? Uh, You could take it and it would be grammatically appropriate. Uh, You could take it as though it was Samson seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. That this whole idea to 
intermarry with a Philistine daughter there at Timnah. It's all this ruse, it's this undercover mission of marriage in order to kind of get on the inside so he can bring judgment upon the Philistines as a result. But it's probably best, don't you think, in light of all the surrounding context, to understand the he there in verse 4 as referring to Yahweh. That as he went down to ask for this request of a wife, his parents didn't know that even this was from the Lord. For Yahweh was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. It's, it's good news, isn't it, that when God's people are forgetful, when God's people are fragile in their faith, that God continues to work out his sovereign purposes according to his perfect and wonderful plan. Now, does that mean that Samson was right to request a wife from the Philistines? Well, kids, you should shake your head and say, no, Jordan, it's wrong that he did that. Now, was it wrong for his parents to object that he shouldn't intermarry with a pagan people? No, it was right for them to object through that. But do we not often see throughout Scripture that what we mean for evil, God is going to use for good? That yes, we are responsible for those sinful choices that we have made, but praise the Lord that he is able, even from the sinful choices, to do precisely what his eternal decree and counsel has foreordained must happen in order to bring his sovereign purposes to pass. It's why one of my favorite commentators in the book of Judges says this, quote, Yahweh can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his people as the camouflage for bringing his secret will to pass. So Samson was set apart. Uh, Samson was a man who lived by sight. Samson also was part of God's plan. And of course, perhaps most famously, Samson was a man of strength. He was strengthened in the spirit. Go back to chapter 16. There's this, I suppose, not so subtle nod to his strength, isn't there? After the eyes are gouged out in verse 21, look at what we're told in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And kids, if you know anything about Samson's hair, you might think in your internal heart, that's not good news for the Philistines. He's not a man of male pattern baldness. His hair is growing again. Tomorrow afternoon, I'll be down in Dallas, I trust, visiting my grandparents, paternal grandparents that have lived really as in Dallas the whole time I've been alive and have had an integral part in my own life. And uh, they're now aged and in their early 90s, and it's not as often as I get to see them. And uh, there's so much in my life that I often think about in God's kindness and goodness of just time spent at Grandma and Grandpa's house. You know, kids, it's a wonderful thing, as I know some of you even in this church get to be here on the Lord's Day with, with grandparents. And isn't it a wonderful thing for those of you who are grandparents that get to be here on the Lord's Day with, with grandchildren and just the opportunity you have to, to care and nurture and, and comfort and guide along the way. Well, there was a period of time in my childhood that my grandparents lived only a few blocks away. And it was quite common for us as children who were homeschooled to just kind of disappear late in the morning and, and run off to grandma and grandpa's house and spend time there uh, raiding their candy closet, which is one of the things we loved as grandkids. But one of the unique attractions of grandma and grandpa's house was that they had cable TV. And for someone growing up in the early 90s that didn't have cable TV. It was amazing to go over to a house that had such a thing. Uh, some of my cousins loved to be there because they could uh, watch this channel called the Cartoon Network and just watch cartoons on, on basically 
perpetuity in its rhythm all day long. But, but for me, as someone who loves sports, I got to turn on ESPN every time I went over there. And this was in the age, some of you might be able to sympathize with this, this was in that time period before ESPN could even claim to be the undisputed worldwide leader in sports. You know, you would turn it on at random parts in the day, and there maybe wasn't a whole lot worth watching. And so I would go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house and turn on ESPN, and more often than you would possibly realize, I was watching these reruns of the World's Strongest Man competition. And these huge, you know, bowling ball type individuals, you know, performing these amazing feats of strength. You know, I remember one of them being the Hercules hold, you know, had these huge pillars weighing, I don't know how much, but an enormous amount. And they would lean to the outside and the man was there holding on to him for as long as possible. Or there was the refrigerator carry where you would take two refrigerators and put them almost like barbells or basically weights on a barbell that would be put on your back and it's whoever could walk the farthest under this extreme weight and if you've ever seen something like that uh, you know that it's simply meant to be entertainment via feats of strength now much of Samson's story isn't it for, for many Christians is entertainment via his feats of strength because he was a man that was going to judge deliver be the savior for Israel through these humanly impossible acts. Maybe you've heard of them. You kind of scan through the story of chapter 14 and 15, leading in after actually chapter 16. And maybe you know uh, that Samson, when he was young, he tore apart a lion with his bare hands. And maybe you know after the Philistines tempted his Philistine wife, he enacted vengeance and retribution upon 30 Philistines, killing them seemingly with the snap of his fingers. And you might also know that later on, he, he took 300 foxes. He, he tied in pairs their tails together, set a torch between them so they could kind of scatter throughout the land of Philistia and they would burn down all the grain fields in judgment upon the Philistines. Perhaps most noticeably in chapter 15, maybe you know that Samson, when he was under even arrest and under their care and provision, he broke forth. He took what? A simple jawbone of a donkey, and he slew over a thousand Philistine soldiers. Such was his strength. But I want you to show, I want to see, I want you to see how even his strength, while properly understood to really be from his hair, it truly was actually from God's spirit that which his hair was a sign of. If you go to chapter 15, notice verse 14, in this amazing scene where he picks up the jawbone and he's gonna soon kill three, I'm sorry, over a thousand men with a simple donkey's bone. I were told in verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then what? The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, which was said to happen already twice in chapter 14 and these other feats of strength. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes were on his arms as though they were flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. Hey, he's a wonderful illustration, isn't he, of what the prophet Zechariah would tell God's people, not by might nor strength declares Yahweh your God, but by my spirit. You know, kids, students, you're gonna wake up tomorrow and you're gonna have to fight against enemies. Uh, aren't you gonna fight against enemies named Sin, Satan, the world, your own flesh. What weapon will you use? And I want you to see something about the Spirit's strength that is offered to every single one of those. 
people that come to Jesus Christ in faith, uh, poured out spirit into their hearts to strengthen them for this work of their fighting of the good fight. So he's a man set apart. He's a man who lived by sight. He's a man who's part of God's sovereign plan. He was a man that was strong. He was strong in God's spirit is what the text tells us. And finally, no doubt, we need to recognize that he was a man who brought salvation. Samson brought salvation. Because you go back to chapter 16. As we read the text, we saw, didn't we, that they are celebrating the ravenger of the land. His name is Samson, has finally been captured. Uh, thousands of people are gathered into this house, this temple of Dagon, one of their principal gods, probably a god over something like grain. He could be a god over something else, but the point really doesn't matter. And they're there celebrating what the god has done for them, Dagon, and bringing Samson into their midst. And they say, in their drunken merriment, let's bring Samson to entertain us as though he's something of a court gesture. And the text tells us that as he's uh, brought out at some point, he, he's leaning against one of these pillars uh, pillars that Samson clearly uh, begins to believe are, are, are load-bearing pillars, we might say. And, and notice what he says. His, his last words in this book, verse 28, he called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Well, then what happens? God answers the prayer, doesn't he? Down go the pillars. And the text tells us that Samson, in that final act of death, killed more Philistines in that one final act of deliverance than all the others that he had killed up until his life at that moment. But even in looking at verse 28, students, you might be able to circle, if you're good at grammar, all of the, the first-person pronouns that he uses me and mine and all these things. It's why one of perhaps the most storied scholars on this text says, quote, in looking back on Samson's prayer as a whole, the reader is struck by its egocentricity. Samson doesn't seem to care for what is happening there at the house of Dagon, happening to Yahweh's reputation. But I, I do think the view that that commentator takes is far too cynical. It certainly doesn't take into account Hebrews chapter 13, including Samson in the roll call of faith. It seems to be there at the end, well, what Samson is showing us is what it looks like when you no longer live by sight, and you truly do live by faith, which brings us to our two final exhortations and even instructions tonight. Number one, God is strong for undeserving people. God is strong for undeserving people. If you ever need a book in the Bible, and you can find really any book that does this, but perhaps a book in the Bible with such singular repetition shows you the nature of God's sovereign and saving grace, just open judges. This isn't true, just story after story, decade after decade, century after century. What is God doing? Saving and delivering people who don't deserve it. And why is he doing it? Well, that's what God always does, isn't it? For those that he has called according to his good purpose. So surely in the future years, the Israelites were meant to hear this story of Samson here at the end in this house of Dagon as they see this undeserving judge call out to Yahweh and have salvation come from that cry. Uh, surely it might mean something to you in here tonight to know that you as an undeserving sinner can cry out to God for his mercy for his salvation, 
And God gladly and graciously answers such a shout. He's strong for undeserving people. He's also strong, secondly, finally, for us through his beloved judge. Judges teaches us not only in all of these stories, illustrating for us the nature of his sovereign grace, but it, it tells us also that God is determined to have a people that he has called. And he will do that which it takes to redeem, to save those people. And of course, he's called a people to himself in Jesus Christ from eternity past. And I trust you see something of the similarities in this judge before us and judges tonight who is faithless in so many ways. And that perfect judge to come who is faithful in every way. Both miraculous births. An angel comes to the mother and says, you will conceive and bear a son and he will save his people. And then he goes about what doing miraculous things by the Spirit's strength. And then even in death, he brings deliverance to God's people. So it's a good news, isn't it? This gospel story, this story of strength, that God is strong for undeserving people like you and me. And he's strong for such people through his beloved judge whose name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that in our weakness, your power is made perfect. Thank you for the strength that you have exercised for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the many ways in which your spirit filled him, every way in which your spirit filled him, that he might be found faithful and perfect, obedient unto the point of death, and that death bringing our deliverance. So do let us know something of your grace towards us, Help us even afresh this night to be overwhelmed, amazed at the kindness that we don't deserve that you continually pour out upon us in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.